Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched. I'm Bill Peschel. And I'm Teresa Peschel, Bill's lovely wife, in case he forgets to tell you. Yes. Uh, How are you doing today, Teresa? (laughs) I'm doing really well, and I'm wishing we really had a script for this. But we're going to wing it, folks, so off we go. Why start now? Today's topic, and I want to remind people that this is a a spoiler-heavy podcast. We, We reveal everything, so... We're going to be discussing the 2003 movie Sparkling Cyanide, done for British television. Teresa, what did you think of it? They managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. This movie has a bad reputation, and I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. I was expecting to suffer for an hour and a half. And it caught me right away. I was really grooving. I was really jonesing on this movie, really enjoying it. And then the last 10 minutes were just awful absolutely awful. Well, we'll get into that. But first, let's give you a little bit of an overview on what the movie is about. And be sure to jump in, Teresa, whenever I'm screwing up here as well. Because Oh, there, I always do, dear. Absolutely. There are some differences between this and the book. As, as Teresa had remarked before we started, this was like a they turned sparkling cyanide into a police procedural. Yes. The novel is told primarily from Iris's viewpoint. The novel has an interesting structure. It's really set up into three sections. The deep past, where Iris remembers what happened to Rosemary, because the events in the novel took place over the over about a year and a half. So you have the events of the past, you have the most recent past, and then you have the present day of, oh my God, what's going to happen next? But it's all from Iris's point of view. And if you remember the 1983 version of Sparkling Cyanide, that again, despite being changed to California and the events compressed down to two weeks, was still told from Iris's point of view. It was essentially her point of view. This movie is set up like a police procedural. The two most important people are Dr. Catherine Kendall and Colonel Jeffrey Reese. They are a married couple and they're in their 60s. And it's really a pleasure to see actual people in their 60s who are not being played off as being ignorant doofuses, but they're they're smart, they're savvy, they are solving the case. And every single thing that happens almost without fail is really told from their point of view. This movie is from their point of view. They are solving a mystery that was handed to them. Right. Kendall and Reese are working for the prime minister in some super secret agency that their goal is to reduce scandals that might affect the British government. So they are working for the man. And you don't they nobody ever says the phrase MI5, but that's what you should be thinking. It's very clear that that's what you should be thinking, that the uh, this is the secret wing of the British government that is keeping tabs on internal affairs. And yes, the prime minister or the assistant to the prime minister has has a lot more control over what's going on than you think he does. And we'll be getting into that later because there's some really creepy elements in this show that once you start seeing this, if you see it from American eyes, you're wondering, oh my God. God, this is Big Brother in action. Chinese social engineering at its finest. That's right. Now, the story revolves around George Barton and Rosemary Barton. And George is the tough owner of a British soccer club. He's one of those moguls who is tough as nails. And he marries this young, fresh Rosemary Barton. Um, yes, you look at them and you know why he married her. And you look at him and, you, and the money and you know why she married him. 
Right. We all know, although nobody ever really comes out and says it. Right. And so the, the so that's the, uh, you might call it the Agatha Christie household around everything revolves because there's Ruth Lessing, who's secretary to George and secretly in love with him. There is Iris Marl, who Rose, is Rosemary's younger sister. Rosemary's younger sister. So I have to remember Rosemary and Iris, you know, both, both flowers, flowers, herbs. Uh, they, they, Iris is a flower. Rosemary is an herb, but Rosemary does have a flower because virtually every plant does have a have a flower it's just it's a very drab nondescript flower and we don't pay attention to it okay but and rosemary is for remembrance rosemary. you know that's right that's from the book isn't it yes it is okay. yes it is but rosemary has been for remembrance for a long time right and f- because this is a football club that george barton owns the role of carl fitzgerald is played by a soccer player who is working for george that's right and he kind of takes the place of anthony brown in the novel except that when it really matters and this is part of the problem at the ending he doesn't show up he doesn't show up he doesn't rescue his damsel in peril right. and 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 he was set up as a really uh, I, I'm going to take a few minutes and, and rant about Fitz Fitzgerald, the soccer player. Yes. He was set up in the initial opening scene by George Barton as being a volatile, a gambler, a womanizer. The reason why we put up with this man is because he is an absolute genius on the pitch. Just succeeded with a hat trick, which I think means he scored three points. And in soccer, it's really hard to score, score points. And he is worth he is worth the exorbitant fee that George Barton pays him and he is set up as this volatile guy. And then for the rest of the film that you see him in, he's essentially been castrated. You know, he's meek, he's mild, he's pleasant. And when he really should be coming into his own at the end to rescue Iris, no, he is not even on screen and you never get an explanation for why he ghosted her. For um, so you have Rosemary and Iris, and they are the stepdaughters of Lucilla, Lucilla Drake. Drake. Uh, Lucilla Drake is kind of a relative cousin or something like that, a cousin of their mother. And she took them into her household when their parents were killed in a car accident. And Lucilla also has an older son named Mark Drake. And Mark is. Every family has to have one. Mark is the black sheep of the family. And George Barton has a very low opinion of him. And well, he should. Mm-hmm. Mark Drake uh, actually kind of reminds me of Agatha Christie's uh, brother, who apparently had similar personality traits. He was abs- he was charming. He was absolutely feckless. Uh, they finally sent him off. He was and, a money pit. <laughs> he was a money pit. He, they sent him off to, to the military and he served in East Africa. And there's a particular story in her autobiography in which he decides before the war, before World War One broke out, he was going to build a boat on Lake Victoria, I think, to as a ferry to transport. And they supplied him with money and he, he spent the money to build the boat and he outfitted himself with a captain's uniform that outdid the Prussians in in glitter and then the war broke out and he had to sell the boat for a loss and then he went up to kenya to join the east african rifles and i could see mark drake being he's that charming kind of rue that that playboy and lucilla drake absolutely fawns on him and supports him in the novel it's pointed out that he is a an unexpected late life baby she had him very late in life she married late in life and never thought she would have a child and suddenly at age 40 She's having a baby of her very own, her own little precious baby boy who can do no wrong. And that's where that all stems from. And of course, her husband abandoned them because he was
is a rotter, so it's just her and Mark against the world. Mm -hmm. And he's a couple of years older than Rosemary and Iris, old enough that when they came into the household, he resented them. Well, but that's not something we see until the very yeah, end. Yeah, we don't see that fact. until the very end. He is he probably takes really well after his father, the one who abandoned him and mom. Right. And then rounding out the family, this whole this this group of people are the Faradays, Stephen and Alexandra. And Stephen is a minister of sport. Which is why George Barton is posing up to him, mm -hmm. because George Barton, of course, is an important sports mogul and he needs to move up in the world. He's, as Stephen says, he is angling for a knighthood. And in the United States, of course, we all think like, who cares? But in a more hierarchical country where they are honest about their class system, having a knighthood really matters. Being able to walk into a restaurant and have the waiter say, Sir George, instead of just Mr. Barton. Right. That really matters. So Stephen Faraday is an up-and-comer. He has no background whatsoever. And again, this entire section of the plot was kind of either omitted completely or glossed over. But he married Alexandra for a political leg right. up. She's a Queen's Council, so she's a barrister. She's a barrister, but her family is very important and well-connected. And that's basically why he married her. Right. So that, And also, um, what we find out during the story, Stephen's having an affair with Rosemary Barton as well. So all this comes to a head. When... Yes. So there you are at the... And, and they took their time setting this up. They took their time setting this up. George Barton has the celebratory dinner because Fizz got a hat trick and, and he wanted to point out to everybody how much he adores beautiful rosemary and he toasts rosemary and rosemary falls over dead in a public restaurant from cyanide poisoning so who put the cyanide in her glass of sparkling champagne and how did they do it because nobody saw anything and we've seen this before when we saw the previous uh, version of sparkling cyanide and because these are all new people to us you know george barton the sports mogul and fizz who is the the striker who is who's you know uh having to endure his his uh, tongue lashing because he gets very well paid. All this was very fresh and really exciting. And then as a result of this, because Stephen Faraday was sitting there at the table when this woman is poisoned with cyanide in a public restaurant, that's why Catherine and Jeffrey Reese, Colonel Reese, get involved, called in on behalf of the prime minister. Stephen Faraday is an up-and-comer. We want to make sure there's no scandal. And then gradually things unfold and they discover that, oh my God, yes, he has been having a torrid affair with Rosemary Barton, not the woman to whom he is married. And, and this also... not being France, this actually matters. <laughs> Yes, but it matters to a certain degree. And that's all this is. Again, this is sort of like, uh, was it House of Cards? There was a it was a British show that was all about behind the scenes of the British government and all this maneuvering. I thought that had, was an American show with Kevin Spacey, but I can't it remember because we never saw American, it. It's an American version of the British show. So you. So what we see for a good part of the of the movie is all this uh, maneuvering, this political maneuvering. You know, is Stephen it's, Faraday having to resign? Is the press going to find out? It's very Mach Mach Machiavellian. Machiavellian, yes. It's very Machiavellian. Thank you, dear. Uh, you, I know you love it when you're able to correct my grammar and <laughs> my pronunciation. We're rolling. People are listening. I know they are and they love it. Um, but anyway, yes, it's very Machiavellian and manipulative. And you can see, and, and I think it's actually surprisingly true to what actually happens, which is that people in power, by God, they are going to stay there. 
and they are going to do what it takes to stay there. And that is what we see. And they're also going to do whatever they feel like doing and, and hope nobody notices, which is in par this for case, the course, par for the course. And so, you know, there, there's also the case. Uh, there's also news that came out that Rosemary Barton was had been pregnant and had an abortion recently. So why did she have an abortion? And this actually this is another one of those things that fell apart at the end because she was having fertility treatments according to her sister right she was having fertility treatments she was desperate to have a child and at the same time of course she was carrying on with Stephen faraday but if she was really desperate to have a baby and her husband knew she was taking fertility treatments why would she abort the baby because hey you had a baby right well many 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 women have presented babies to their much older husbands why are you looking at me like this <laughs> the husband says <laughs> Wow, we had a child of our very own. It is not unheard of. It is not unheard of. So why did she do it? But we are that question. This is, again, where the ending fell down. We are never answered that question. I really was enjoying this. It was fresh. It was a different take. We very rarely see Agatha Christie done as a police procedural. But that's really what they were doing. And there's some amusing byplay as well that kind of also referred to the overall theme of secrets and lies, because there's an assistant uh, played by Dominic Cooper, Andy, Andy Hoffman, who was their computer geek. And as the movie went on, this started to get a real, you know, a real big CSI flavor. It's like they saw what was popular and they said, we got to shoehorn some of this. So he was their computer geek. He, he breaks into people's bank accounts. He breaks into the CCTV to find out all these things. And one of the things that was a subplot, sub subplot of this was that was that Andy was trying. He has to keep his identity a secret and he can't. He can't date because they'll ask him, what do you do? And he tries to lie and they pick up on it. So there's this little sub subplot of, of Catherine Kendall teaching Andy how to lie, how to lie to dates yep. so that uh, he can he can it can turn into a long term relationship. At which point, I guess, at the rehearsal dinner, he turns to his bride to be and says, by the way, I work for a super secret government agent and I can't talk about it at all. And the bride says okay, and the bride to be says, OK, dear. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he waits until after the, the honeymoon. But that Who knows? Part, that part was really fun. And the things she was teaching him, I recognized from an FBI agent being interviewed on another podcast talking about how you what are those tells that indicate a person is lying? You know, it's body language, it's eye motion. And all that was absolutely accurate, which is why when they got into other areas of, of that were CSI, so terrible, they this were is absolutely horrible. Remember, this is my podcast. So uh, <laughs> So I should do some of the talking. Anyway. <laughs> Tune in to Married or Divorced next time on. Well, I, I said they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory at the at the end, which is what they did. But one of the other things that is and, and this is where you have to watch it a second time, believe it or not. Mm hmm. You watch it a second time because what you're really seeing is a peon to the surveillance state. You are seeing a celebration of Big Brother is watching 
you. Of social engineering at its finest, you've got the assistant to the prime minister, McCain, is wanting to make sure that no terrible things come out about their up-and-coming politician because we have to maintain a certain public image. And, and the implication, of course, is they don't really care what their politicians do as long as it doesn't come out in public. And so you have the super secret set of spies whose family, by the way, does not know what they are doing. And that's another side plot. They've got their daughter and grandson living with them. And grandson is hacking into grandma's computer to find out what she's up to. But they're doing an investigation that has nothing whatsoever to do with things like search warrants, probable cause, any of the due process, anything that would stand up in a court of law. That doesn't matter. What's important is maintaining face in front of the public. Which is what they always do, but it is these means that they're doing it by that was really very creepy. Oh, yes, because uh, Catherine has her uh, pet geek, Andy, hacking into Stephen Faraday's bank accounts, his credit card records. His scheduling of appointments. His, his scheduling of appointments, and that's how they're able to discover that, oh, every Thursday he is he alternates between a haircut and a acupuncture appointment, and you look at his hair and you say, nope, he's not getting his hair cut every other week. You can tell he does it himself with nails scissors. And the acupuncture, no, doesn't look like somebody who's old and stiff and needs acupuncture, and then followed immediately by a weekly sushi delivery. And then you hack into all of these databases and you discover that he's at this apartment that's owned by Rosemary Barton. And this is why, folks, if you don't want to be seen, pay cash for everything. And then they start using the CCTV system. And so Andy starts hacking into the CCTVs. There are cameras all over London. And they're putting this in two. This, this film was shot in 2002 and released in 2003. So this is 20 years ago. And they were already putting cameras all over the place. Well, the cameras really aren't that good. But they were telling us, and this is where the movie started falling down, that not only are the cameras everywhere, except, of course, inside the nightclubs and restaurants frequented by our betters, because they they aren't supposed to be spied on the way the rest of us peasants are, but that the magic technology means that no matter how well disguised you are with hats and scarves and beards, if the camera catches even the tiniest glimpse of an angle of your face... It will know where you are and correctly identify you. Well, folks, the Chinese are working hard on that and they still can't get to that level. But apparently on this TV show, oh, my God, Big Brother was watching you constantly and knew exactly where you were at every moment. And they used the CCTV footage, which was completely spurious, the whole idea behind it, to solve their mystery. Yeah, there was no deductions <laughs> as, as a result of this. It was just all, oh, we'll, we'll let the cameras and we'll let the software solve it. And cameras make mistakes. AI makes mistakes. People make mistakes. Everything makes mistakes. And this is even though they had already had the information in front of them as they are talking about uh, when they finally realized that it was Iris who was supposed to die at the second party. It was not George. It was supposed to be Iris. Well, who benefits from Iris's death? Well, it's Lucilla Drake. She inherits as the next of kin. But who is Lucilla going to give that money to? Why, her precious baby boy. And this is where the ending fell apart because they're using the camera evidence to work out the mystery that they could have solved on their own with their own 
little gray cells. And then Iris, at the same time, she is panicked because she's gotten this phone call from Catherine and Colonel Reese. Oh my God, your you know your life is in danger. She finds it hard to believe, but at the same time, she's very upset and she's calling Fizz. Fizz, you have to come save me. Where are you? And Fizz doesn't answer the phone. And so she runs off to her cousin, her dear beloved cousin, Mark Drake, because she knows that he will save her. Also being sure not to be seen by the surveillance guys set by Kendall and Reese, who is literally standing outside on the pavement looking up at the apartment. Yeah. And if you're setting surveillance on somebody, you know, you should put somebody at the back door, too. <laughs> and I guess this is where the magic CCTV cameras didn't work because they're they obviously weren't having anybody monitoring the cameras front and back. So they weren't doing a very good job of surveillance. And I suppose we should all be very happy that they weren't doing a good job with surveillance. But this is where the ending really fell apart. Because remember, Iris called Fizz. Fizz is the volatile, energetic, studly young striker on George Barton's soccer team. We know that he is a fabulous player. We know that he's fabulously athletic. We've seen him punching bags. He's sparring with an opponent in a gym. Right, and he loves Iris. And he loves Iris, and they're going to be married. And who shows up to help rescue Iris at the last possible minute as she is fleeing evil Mark Drake? Why, a 62-year-old married couple and a couple of police. When what you should have seen, even though it is implausible, what you should have seen was Fizz coming up the alley from the other direction and slamming Mark face first into the wall several times and treating his head like a soccer ball because he is a soccer player and he's rescuing the damsel and then the police show up and pull him off in time so that you actually have a live person to prosecute instead of a dead body to bury. And that would have been satisfying. That was the problem with the movie. They kept setting up all these potential plot points and they don't pay it off. They didn't pay it off. I was really enjoying the movie up until the last 10 minutes when it completely fell apart on the ending. They pulled all their punches on the ending and then we had had to sit through at least five minutes of epilogue scenes that either could have been skipped or put in earlier, such as the reconciliation between Stephen and Alexandra Faraday, and he should have said this to her before they found out who the murderer was, and he should have also said, which is what he did in the book, and they didn't do this. What he should have said was, you're right, I didn't marry you because I was in love with you. I married you because you were a stepping stone to power, but we made a really good team, and I met Rosemary, and I fell madly in love with her, and then a couple of weeks later, I realized she has nothing. She had nothing to offer other than beauty and and I kept thinking of you because you have personality and you have charm and you have talent and you have intellect and you can carry on a conversation and we make a great team. And I thought, I can't lose you. I love you. And it took Rosemary Barton, a vapid, airheaded socialite, to show me what I had in you. And they we didn't get that scene. Something that's strongly in the novel. Not Very the much movie. so. Very much so. Yeah. And this is when, in the novel, Alexandra Faraday admits that she's loved Stephen from the first moment she saw him. She married him even though she knew he was marrying her as a stepping stone to power because she wanted him. Mm -hmm. But she was a, she's a certain kind of lady of a certain class, and you don't show that you really have the hots for a man. Yeah. Well, and that was that was the la almost the almost the last scene, next to last scene in the movie after the 
murder has murders have been solved. Yes, and it should have taken place earlier mm. because then there's still tension of is one of these people the murderer of Rosemary and George Barton? It's almost a screenwriting rule, guideline, whatever you want to say. You have your main plot, you have your subplot at the beginning, and then at the end you resolve the subplot first, and then you resolve the main plot. And exactly. Retains and, the unity of the story. Exactly, and they didn't do that. And this movie has a poor ratings online, and I can see why. As I said, I was really enjoying the movie right up until the last 10 minutes, but the last 10 minutes are so terrible that they they cast a pal upon the rest of the film. Yeah. But at the same time, I would still watch it again because there is so much going on with the police surveillance state, and it is just an ode to Big Brother watching <laughs> you. It's a wonderful piece of propaganda, and if you're a responsible, respectable citizen who wouldn't dream of doing anything bad, well, this is not really a bad idea, is it? Yeah. That's how these things are sold. And also the blatant invasion of privacy. Andy, the computer geek, even says this is why no one has any privacy, although he pronounces it wrong, being British. Uh... <laughs> Well, there goes our English audience. Nice talking to you, folks. They don't say vitamin right either. <laughs> but it was it was really, you know, there's so much to like in this movie, the way it's recast as a police procedural, the older couple who are, and it's so nice to see an elderly couple on screen, a, a couple who are obviously in their 60s because they've got a daughter old enough to be married with a 10-year-old grandchild. Mm-hmm. The whole recasting is the police procedural, bringing yourself into the modern age with a self-made scrap metal magnet who buys a soccer team and is angling for a knighthood. And and at the same time, there are age-old tropes on display, such as we all know why he married her and we all know why she married him. It really did a great job. And then that last 10 minutes... Oh, my God. As I said at the beginning, they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. This would have been a successful movie if they would have written the ending correctly. And if you're interested in other things about the cast, the Colonel Jeffrey Reese is played by Oliver Ford Davies, who, if you remember from the Poirot episode, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, he played Dr. Shepard. So he was a murderer there, and he was a good guy here. Good guy here. And if you you know your Star Wars, he was also a C.O. Bibble, a senator in like the first three movies as well. So, And the other character, Mark Drake, is played by an actor, Jonathan Firth, who played Nigel Chapman in the Poirot episode of Hickory Dickory Dock. And he was also the villain there. But he's unrecognizable, different haircut and glasses, and it is amazing how unrecognizable he is, proving that CCTV <laughs> surveillance cameras, the, the software, isn't that good because i didn't recognize him and we only saw that movie like three weeks ago yeah yeah no wonder i kept thinking there must be something i've seen him before i must have and that cross thought never even crossed my mind yeah well it definitely did for uh, jeffrey reese and that wasn't too long ago especially since i published the complete annotated murder of roger Ackroyd, and i included my review of it in there so well it just goes to show doesn't it Yeah, you never know with an adaptation. You never, never know with an adaptation. This has a lot to offer, but at the same time, be forewarned, the ending just sucks. It's almost, it's a contemporary piece about Britain. You know, the media and the politicians and the surveillance state, it's all there. And the clash between modern celebrities of soccer players and sports teams owners and young women trading on their beauty and position for money. And at the same time, you have a scrap metal magnate 
who bought a soccer team and why is he cozying up to Stephen Faraday, uh, up and coming um, Minister, uh, of Sport. Minister of Sports, because he wants a knighthood yeah. as old as time. He wants that title in front of his name. Yep. So I guess and we already got the answer to the question of you, who should you see it? And the answer is yes, but with a, with a big red flag. A big red flag. That ending is going to be terrible. And recognize it. Think of it as a police procedural. Agatha Christie redone as a police procedural. And about 90% successful, too. Yeah, it really I, I thought it was. I thought it was. I've seen a lot of terrible adaptations now, including the murder of Roger Ackroyd with uh, Oliver Ford Davies as Dr. Shepard. And boy, was that just absolutely terrible. But this was another, better. That's another That's another episode <laughs> if we ever get around to that again. But anyway, it is a half hour, and I want to thank you all for showing up and listening. This is Bill Peschel. And I'm Teresa Peschel. And the next one that we're going to do is Five Little Pigs, or Murder in Russia respect depending on which title you use and that's going to be david suchet and until then we'll see you at the movies bye-bye bye agatha christie she watched is Teresa peschel and bill peschel produced by bill peschel theme song call to adventure by kevin mcleod new episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content if you enjoyed this podcast you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email Peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.